Praise God. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, uh, to Luke, the ninth chapter, and just hold on a little bit. I'm going to try and get through this uh, as quick as I can. We started last week, uh, we can pull up the first slide there, I'm taking a journey to Jerusalem, a journey on the road to Jerusalem, and, uh, you know, I feel like my first trip to Jerusalem, to Israel, I was very uh, excited about getting to go there. God just worked out a miracle for that to happen. And uh, anyway, I loved going there. But if you go to Jerusalem, if you go to Israel, they take you around to different places and the significance there and the, the scriptures, and they really just come to life. But one thing I learned is that you go for a 10-day tour, you don't see it all. You can't see it all or learn about it all in one day. It takes a while. Going back, you still learn something. So we're taking a journey on the road to Jerusalem, and just like on the tour that I went on to, we couldn't do it all in one day, and we had to take a break. So be assured, but I'm not going to try and take all day to get you there. All right? <laughs> we'll do a little bit, and we'll take a break, okay? <laughs> and then come back at it again next week. But last week, we talked about uh, on this road, a point where Jesus was at. We, we took, him, uh, took him from the place uh, in John the 11th chapter, the graveyard and the grave closed. We addressed that uh, when Jesus had delayed his coming uh, because he knew what was going to happen. Oftentimes, we don't know what's going to happen. We question God. God, where were you? If you had been here, this would not have happened, just like Mary and Martha had said. And we've all probably been guilty of that before. God, where were you? Where were you? Well, know this. He was already on the other side in what was going to take place. And uh, in the midst of all that, he, he was there with us. And when he, he, he always will be with us. And so anyway, when he got there, he, they, he told them to roll away the stone and then loosen and let him go. Take off those grave clothes. And I use that as a comparison of how salvation gets us out of the tomb of death. We're taken from death into life. But in our journey, oftentimes we've been, we've been in there with grave clothes. And it's time that we shed those things. And Lazarus couldn't do that by himself. He needed the assistance of others. And that's what the church is all about. Helping one another get delivered. Get set free from the chains that hold us from our walk with the Lord, the, the bandages that hold our arms down instead of allowing us to lift our hands and praise God, the, the, the blinders that cause us to not have vision. We, we unwrap and we loose that. We, we, we unloose or open the ears, take the bandages off to allow hearing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of the Lord in our mouths to speak and to declare. And that was the the parallel or the illustration that I gave you last week of breaking the, uh, the, or taking off the grave clothes. And I, I shared with you how I think that we're seeing that take place uh, in the midst of where we're at today. I believe that we're in a, uh, another Jesus revolution like happened 50 years ago. I think we're moving beyond just the salvation aspect of it, but I believe we're moving in the power of deliverance. And, uh, you know, a movie came out, or a documentary movie held in the theater at Edwardsville uh, that, that was actually a deliverance service after they had shown how people were getting set free 
and people were delivered even in the theaters. And it went so well, I think there were 2,000 theaters that showed it, and now it's coming back again uh, for two nights again. It'll be in Edwardsville, April 10th and 11th. And, uh, but whether it takes place there or here or wherever it is at, I want you to know something. God wants to set us free. Amen. Amen. He wants his people to be free. And so I think we're seeing that in our society today, in our culture, that the enemy has rejoiced and, and celebrated over the fact that he thinks that he's holding, hold, held the church in bondage. But we're coming out of the grave clothes. Amen. Amen. And uh, we're getting ready to move forth. Amen. Right. I knew of a revival, or I know I've heard of a revival. I didn't get to go to it, but down in Springfield, Missouri, in Ozark, Missouri, there's a church down there, uh, Saint R or James River Assembly of God Church in Ozark. And the church down there has grown phenomenally. I don't know if it's tens of thousands of people that they have, but they had a revival or a scheduled meetings, uh, a healing uh, time for a week I think it was a couple of weeks back and they had uh, Bill Johnson uh, the pastor of Bethel Church in Redding California and Randy Clark to come in Randy used to pastor over across the river in St. Louis but has a great healing ministry and they came over uh, and ministered there and upon one night there's a lot of controversy that has taken place but uh, Apparently, one night, he asked for those who needed creative or regenerative miracles, and several people came down, and a woman came down uh, who had been uh, shot by her ex-husband, and as a result, had to have three toes amputated. It was covered on the news back in 2015, and through prayer, not one of the guys, not the pastors, but prayer with people that were praying and believing something began to grow and of course there's a lot of controversy about about it because how come they don't have it on camera how about this you know blah 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 anyway we uh john lindell uh says that it's taken place i trust him and uh until it comes out on air i'm still going to believe by faith because i know my god can do it amen. i know he can do it amen and I believe for regenerative miracles in your life. Yes. Amen. I believe he can grow kidneys and, yep. and all kinds of things. Yep. He can restore. He, he's God. Yep. He's God. He created everything that we have yep. just by speaking it. He can do it. The days, the days of the miracles are not done. That's right. They're not done. They're still happening. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. So anyway, today we want to look at this passage of Scripture uh, from Luke, the ninth chapter, if you will, please uh, read with me. Uh, he's come from uh, Bethany from last week, and several things have taken place, but it says now, Luke 9, 51, it says, now it came to pass when the time had come, everybody say time had come. It's important about the timing. The time had come for him to re be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they didn't receive him. The Samaritans did not receive him because his face was set for going to Jerusalem. They said, Jesus wants to go to Jerusalem, and they just didn't receive him. 
And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them like Elijah did? You want us to do that? And Jesus said, guys, don't. No, just quiet down. You don't even know what manner of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And then they went on to another village. So this morning, I want to talk to you uh, a little bit about this road to Jerusalem that's taken us here uh, into uh, heading for Jerusalem. They make this stop there. And Jesus is now, for the second time, predicted his, uh, his death and his resurrection. He did like three times that he really prepared them. They didn't know what to think. Matthew, the 16th chapter, Matthew records it like this. Jesus says, hey, what, what are people saying about me? What are they saying about me? And, of course, the people, they heard it out in the streets. They heard the rumors. They saw it on Facebook and online. They Googled it. Well, some are saying that you're Elijah and uh, some Jeremiah, one of the prophets, Isaiah. You know, they're, they're saying that you're one of those prophets. And he said, but, well, who do you say that I am? And apparently no one else answered, but Peter spoke up. He says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looked at him and he said, wow, Simon Peter, for flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My genetics, my physical appearance didn't reveal that to you, but my father, which is in heaven. And he said, upon this rock, the, the revelation of this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he Peter has this great revelation. I'm sure he's probably looking around, you know, kind of. <laughs> I saw that. You know, Jesus commented about it was God that revealed it. And uh, then Jesus said, well, I want to tell you something. The Son of Man has to go to Jerusalem, and there he's going to be uh, betrayed by the people there. And the priests are going to take him, and they're going to hang him, or they're going to uh, uh, crucify him. And then I'm going to be dead. And then I'm going to rise again on the third day. And Peter, the same guy who had the revelation, says, Far be it from thee, O Lord. That cannot happen. And before he could get his whole statement out, Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. Because he knew what spirit was trying to manifest there through Peter. And so he rebuked him. And so this is the second time that he's tried to reveal to them that his, his reason for being is that he has to go from there in just a short period of time and he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be uh, mocked, he's going to be examined and tried, he's going to go through such pain, even to the point of death, hanging on a cross, but uh, he'll be buried and that he's going to rise again. And so this morning we want to talk about this place that uh, we're on the way to. There's a place called Jerusalem. Everybody say Jerusalem. Jerusalem. We'll look at the place, the passion, and the purpose associated with that. The place, the passion, passion, and the purpose. Jerusalem, it's said, uh, speaking of the place, it's said that it's God's city, it's God's clock, and it's God's canvas upon which he reveals things. We know it's God's city because we can read in the scriptures there that God has chosen that place. 
God's clock, because the time has come, even within this passage of Scripture, says the time had come for him to go there. If you want to know where we're at in the condition of the world or the, uh, the times that we're in, you can always look toward Jerusalem, the things that are taking place there. And that's going to be the clock that he goes by. And then also, it's his canvas. Throughout the Old Testament, we saw pictures painted and we're going to talk about a couple of those today. But the paintings that portrayed and were a type or a foreshadowing of what would happen. Uh, not only uh, later on, but even in the spirit realm. So it's God's city, God's clock, and God's timepiece. Uh, I wanted to share with you. I don't know what I did with it. Somebody tell me what I did with that. I got all these papers up here. Oh my goodness, I can't find it. Anyway, I had the quote I wanted to give you to this, give to you this. Here it is. And uh, this person made the statement about Jerusalem. Says we will not return immediately to Springfield. We're going to go abroad among strangers where I can rest. We will visit the Holy Land and see those places hallowed by the footsteps of the Savior. There is no place I so much desire to see as Jerusalem. These were the last words of President Abraham Lincoln spoken to his wife Mary the very moment before he was assassinated. That was how important Jerusalem was. Uh, he felt in his, in his life and in his mind that he wanted to see that. And I believe that though he may have not gone to see Jerusalem, he'll be able to see the new Jerusalem that's coming down from the Father. Amen. So there's no other city like Jerusalem. No other city like it. Nothing can compare. 764 times it's mentioned the name Jerusalem is in the Bible. More than 800 times it's used as a reference without being called specifically named. It's been the site and the hub of spiritual as well as physical conflict, even from its beginnings. There's no other city quite like it. But God chose this city. Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2 says, Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the holy mountain, beautiful elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14 says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place, saying, This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Ezekiel 5, 5, thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem, and I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around about her. That word midst, if you break it down, it says, I've set her in the center of all of time and civilization. Jerusalem is at the very center. Genesis, the 14th chapter, this is the first time it really comes into reference. You remember the story how God had spoken to Abram in chapter 11 of Genesis, who lived with his father, and they lived in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And that place there was a, a place of worshiping idols and gods. And uh, anyway, God spoke to Abram and he says, I want you to get out of here. Get away from here. Get away from your family. 
doesn't matter all the ties and the pull that you have here, all the things that are tying you. I want you to break away, and I want you to go out to a place that I'm going to show you. In chapter 12, he says, uh, I'm going to bless you. Your name is going to be great. You'll be blessed of all the nations of the world. Uh, the scripture, the verse that we use by blessing Israel, he says, I'll bless those that bless you. I'll curse those that curse you. But I'll make of you a great nation, but you've got to come out. And so we see that Abram had started out from there uh, with his, his wife. They had no children at that time, but he had some possessions. His nephew Lot went with him. And so we see this through the scriptures from Genesis, the 12th chapter, and 13, that they had gone into some conflict. He told Lot, he says, you dwell, choose the choicest of land if you want, and you go one way and I'll go the other. And Lot ended up in a, in a problem. He ended up in a conflict with uh, Sodom. And so they were, were coming to get them and, and to, to hold them hostage. Gen uh, Abraham got this, and he went to battle for them, and he brought his uh, resources there. And anyway, God blessed them, and he took the spoils that were from there. And in the 14th chapter, the Bible says that after he had taken all these spoils and won the conflict, Melchizedek, everybody say Melchizedek. I have yet to name, or dedicate a child whose name is Melchizedek. I would like to sometime. And I guess the reason is that Melchizedek was the king of Salem. The Bible tells us that we don't know where he came from. Or anything where he went. We don't know anything about it, okay? So I guess the reason we don't bet, uh, dedicate children or name children Melchizedek is we kind of know where they came from, all right? <laughs> Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And Melchizedek comes out bringing this loaf of bread, this vessel of wine, and he begins to bless Abram. And he says, blessed be Abram of God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. And blessings be God most high, who has delivered your hand, or delivered your enemies into your hand. And the Bible tells us that Abraham, or Abram as, a, as he was called at that time, gave him a tithe or a tenth of everything that he had been blessed with. So we see that this is the first mention of, of any type of thing, of a city where, where Melchizedek comes from. Melchizedek is called, his name means king of righteousness, and he blesses Abraham, and he's a type of priest or a, a permanent priesthood, as we would understand it, uh, that Jesus was after. The scripture says that you're a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not the earthly priesthood of Aaron that was established during the time of the tabernacle, but you've come from a different priesthood, uh, one that has no beginning and no end, an everlasting priesthood. And Abraham then at that time gave him tithes or an offering, a tenth of what he had been given. So he's the king of Salem. Now the word Salem is actually Shalem, as we would understand it, means the king of what we note to be Shalom. When we say Shalom, everybody say Shalom, tell your neighbor Shalom, all right? And the thing about shalom is you don't know if you're saying hi or bye, because it's used at both. So. <laughs> but anyway, he's the king of 
Salem or Shalom, which means a whole lot of things. I, I taught for one solid year in 2012 uh, on what Shalom means. I, I want to make a book out of that. It'll be 12 chapters long, one for each month, but it goes through the, all, all the aspects. But it means has like 12 or maybe more meanings than that. But in everything we understand, shalom means the greatest of things that could be spoken unto somebody. Peace, prosperity, wholeness, health, well-being. Uh, all these things are spoken when you greet someone, you speak that to them. When you leave, you leave that with them. You speak that over them. And so this king, he's the king, if you can understand, the king of shalom. He is the king of completeness. He's the king of wholeness. He's over it all. He's the king of peace. And this is where he came from. And it became known later as not just Shalom, but in Joshua, the 10th chapter, verse 1, uh, when Joshua is making his conquest to take over the areas and drive out the enemy of the land that they were supposed to possess, they came upon this city that was there, and he called it Yerushalem. Yerushalem, it means the possession of peace or the city of peace, the city of shalom, the city of completeness and wholeness and uh, nothing missing, nothing broken and nothing lost. And that's what it is known as today. That's what Jerusalem is supposed to be. But yet when we think about Jerusalem being the city of peace and yet all the conflict that's been about it and around it and will be until the time of the coming of the Lord. Amen. So that's why he says, I want you to pray or declare the peace of Jerusalem. Are you understanding? In other words, declare that they come into their destiny and be who they're supposed to be. So Abraham has this encounter with, with Melchizedek, who came from this land. And later, uh, the Lord blesses him and he says, You're going to have a seed, you're going to have a son. And through him, all the nations are going to be blessed. And they wanted a child, and they're both up in age, well advanced in age at that time, and they didn't think it could possibly happen. Sarah, his wife, says, why, did, why don't we try something different here? Well, actually, he prays earlier. Abram prays to God. He says, why don't you just take my servant? He's a great guy. Eliezer, he's a good guy. Just let him carry the seed. God says, no, it's got to come through you. He's not your son. And so anyway, Sarah says, well, why don't you just take Hagar and have a child with her? She's much younger. That would work. Abraham didn't put up a fight. And he has a, has a child. And he says, nope, that's not the seed. He has Ishmael. Ishmael got blessed, but he wasn't the one through whom the, the promised child. And later in life, then he ends up having a son by the name of Isaac uh, that, that, that the blessing would be carried out through. And so anyway, Isaac grows to be, you know, beyond teens. We don't know exactly how old he is, but, you know, an older probably teen could be a young adult at that time. But God speaks to Abraham, and Abraham has been a friend of his. He's been faithful and he says, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your son, your only, your only son that's been promised, and I want you to present him as an offering unto me. And so we know the, 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 uh, the way the thing goes, that he goes out, 
and goes out from that land. He says, I'm going to lead you to a land that I am looking at. This is what it says. God is saying, I want you to go to the land that I have my eyes upon, and there I will show you a specific mountain. And he called the land Moriah, which means it's seen of God, seen of Yahweh. And so he, uh, that, the, the Jews and all their beliefs, they believe that this was actually the foundation of the earth. This was the centerpiece of all the nations, the centerpiece of all time, the centerpiece of everything was this particular area. They call it the land of teaching as well as the land of testing. And so we see how God had tested Abraham to see how faithful he was, and God was going to teach him something in the midst of it to know if he learned through the teaching. So he says, take your son, and he just says, okay, we're going to get up in the morning. Isaac, you and I are going to go and worship the Lord. He takes uh, some people with him, and the Bible says that he gets, finally gets three days away, and he sees the land that he's supposed to go to. He sees the, the mountain that he's going to go with, and God says, there, now I want you to take your only son. So he tells his guys that are with him, he says, you hang around down here with the donkeys and everything. And my son and I, we are going to go up and worship the Lord, and we'll be back. And I love the way it says, we'll be back. He doesn't say, I'm, I'll be back without my son. No, we'll be back. Because the Bible tells us in Romans that Abraham had faith that even if he were to slay Isaac, God would just raise him up there and the two of them would come back with proof that God is faithful to his word. And so Abraham took his son and Isaac looked at him and he says, says, Father, he says, I see you have the, the fire and you have the wood, Isaac is carrying the wood, he says, I know we got the fire and we've got the wood, but where is the ram that we're going to sacrifice? And God says, oh, don't worry, son. The Lord himself is going to sac- provide a sacrifice for us. Of course, when they get to the mountain, the Bible tells us that, that Abraham stretches his out, himself out. He lays before God. And I know the anguish that had to go through him in the, in the mental part of it, the emotional part of it, the physical part of it, but yet his spirit is so led to believe God. You know, you've been in that place before, right? I, I just don't know what to do, but I, you know, you're, you're, you're stuck there. But he had faith in God, and he says, okay, so he binds Isaac to the altar or to the wood, and then he lifts up a knife, and he's ready to do exactly the words of God at that time. And all of a sudden, he hears a voice from heaven, a, thank, a wonderful, welcomed voice that says, Abraham, Abraham, don't you touch your son. For now I know that you believe me and have full confidence in what I'm going to do. Don't you lay a hand on him. And all of a sudden, he heard something else, and he looked where he of where it was coming from, and there was a ram caught in thickets, a ram with thorns in its brow, the painting, the canvas of Israel, showing that God one day would provide his own sacrifice. And with a crown of thorns upon his head, he would be bound to the wood. And he says, loosen the boy. And so God had blessed him at that place. And he says, I'm going to call this place Jehovah Jireh. And we oftentimes think about is that the Lord will provide. Yes, the Lord will provide. But what it actually meant was the Lord himself provided in the mountain of the Lord. It was seen. 
where God says for you to go, you'll see the provision that's there. Are you with me? And so anyway, he calls this place Jehovah Jireh, scene of Yahweh, Moriah. 500 years later, we find that Israel has gone into captivity for 400 years and in bondage in, Israel, in Egypt. But when God delivers them, he takes a young, boy, a young man by the name of Moses who's been raised in Pharaoh's home. He says, I want you to take my people out. And so he leads them out through the Passover, which we'll talk a little bit about that next week. But 500 years after Abraham, now think about this. They, they don't know this land. They've been in Egypt. They haven't seen anything. But yet Moses is spoken to by God. God puts something inside of him. I'm going to take you out to take you into the promised land that I had promised for Abraham. So the people are all excited. There's a Passover that takes place. They're delivered. Pharaoh tells them to go. They give them gold, silver, jewels, wealth, all these things, and they leave out of there. And they're, you, you know the story. They get to the Red Sea. Pharaoh changes his mind. He chases after them, all the armies that are there, and uh, Israel's on foot. And God tells Moses to hold out his staff, his rod, over the water, and the Red Sea parts one direction and the other. They walk on dry land. He gets to the other side, and here comes uh, Pharaoh and all of his chariots and the Bible says that he extended his staff over the water again and the water came together and drowned all of them and the chariots and everything horses so everybody's having a good time they're dancing and celebrating and rejoicing singing songs playing tambourines doing the Jewish jig you know I don't know anyway they're they're having a good time and anyway, then Moses says, he's saying to God, he says, you will bring them and plant them. He's talking about his people. He said, you, God, will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, that you have made for your dwelling place, the sanctuary, O Lord, which you made with your hands and have established. So he was declaring a promise a prophetic word that God would do, taking them and putting them in the place that he wanted to dwell and that would be their homeland. Well, 400 years later, we take, it takes us to the place, and they've gone through a time of selecting kings. You remember they wanted Saul so they could be like other nations. Well, God did not want them to be, have a king. He had a king in mind for them, but they jumped the gun. And so Saul, the, the, the uh, throne was taken from him, and a young boy uh, at that time, uh, 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 David, uh, there was a big giant. There were four, actually five giants, but there was one that came after them, and they, haunted, uh, they taunted Israel, and everyone was afraid of him, a giant by the name of Goliath. Of course, this young David, who was doing uh, Uber uh, Eats, uh, DoorDash, he was just delivering lunch there. He, he gets there. He says, what's the problem? He says, well, that giant over there, he's saying, you know, he's yelling at us. He's called, he says, what is he compared to our God? And he goes after him with a, a sling and five stones, one for Goliath and four of the brothers show up. And so, just in case. And he goes there and he defeats Goliath, throws a stone, hits him in the forehead, 
completely kills him. Then he takes Goliath's sword and lifts it up and cuts off his head, and he brings the head of Goliath back to Jerusalem because Saul, uh, yeah, Saul has said, whoever conquers Goliath gets my daughter. So he comes carrying this bloody skull by the hair, sets it down and says, where's my bride? <laughs> you know. So anyway, David later on becomes the king, and the Ark of the Covenant that Moses had brought from, uh, from their wanderings in the wilderness had been possessed by the Philistines at that time. Well, the Philistines were having bad stuff going on because they had this Ark, and they said, we need to get rid of this thing, get rid of it. And so they took it out, put it in a place, <clears throat> and it stayed there. And David says, you know what? I want this to come to Jerusalem. I want to bring this here. And so he sets out on a, on a journey uh, and, and endeavor to try and bring the Ark of the Covenant into Israel, uh, but he does it incorrectly. The Ark is being transported by oxen rather than the priesthood. He makes a big mistake, and so finally he gets it, gets it right. He does the right thing, and anyway, he brings it in with much rejoicing and sacrifice, David's dancing, Saul's daughter is upset with him. Why are you dancing like that? Come on, you're making a fool of yourself. I can't believe you're doing that. <laughs> Embarrassing. And he says, well, he says, yeah, anyway, he dealt with that later. We won't worry about it. But then they have the tabernacle set up, and the ark is there, and worship is taking place. But David, at this time, takes a census. And he wants to find out how many people they have. And God had specifically told him not to number the people, but he numbered them anyway. And so at that time, uh, he, he, uh, a plague came upon all the people. And David repented. He said, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. I know you told me not to do it. But please, I'm the one that sinned. Bring this judgment upon me, not upon all these people. They're innocent. And so anyway, he, the Lord spoke to him, and he says, I want you to go to Ornan's house, and on his threshing floor, there I want you to build an altar. So he goes to Ornan, and he says, uh, look, the Lord told me, and he's the king. The king comes to your house, and he says, hey, I'd like this, your backyard, if I could, please. I, I would like to build an altar there. And Ornan says, uh, by all means, but here, I'll just give it to you. He says, no, I want to buy it. He says, you don't have to buy it, king. Believe me, my yard is your yard. You go ahead and do what you want with it. And he says, David makes this statement. He says, I refuse <laughs> to give to the Lord something that I didn't pay for. That which cost me nothing, I will never worship God with it. And so anyway, he bought that. And then as he was dedicating that place and built an altar, that this is what he said. This, th this is the house of the Lord. Right here in this spot. And from there, that was set aside. That was Jerusalem in the land of Moriah, Mount Zion, the mountain of the Lord, the city of Zion, the city on the great hills that was beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth, was from that point, from a threshing floor, would be a place that would be throughout eternity. Are you with me? And so anyway, that was the place. It began to be known as the place. Jesus gets to this point. The time has come. 
it's time for him to go to Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that he set his face intently toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the place, and now we see Jerusalem, the passion. He set his face toward Jerusalem just like Abraham did. Just like Isaac did whenever he was carrying the wood. He set his face just like Jacob did whenever he came to the place. He says, this is the gateway of heaven. This is the, the, this is the place of God. He set his face just like Moses did when he led the children of Israel out of there to the place that God was going to show them. He set his face just like Joshua did as a conqueror that was going to go there and take that city and give it back to them. He set his face just like David did that with joy he would go on to that place and do what he was supposed to do. It was with great passion. That word passion in the Old Testament, in Old Testament means to cleave which is an interesting thing because we think of it being so much as an emotional thing in the, the passion of the moment, but it wasn't just an emotional type of thing. It means to cling. In Deuteronomy, they use, they use the word cling to God. It wasn't just an emotional thing. God is not just an emotional thing. I'm telling you what, he's a spirit connection. Amen? And it's within, it, is, it is released by an action, and it believes it's implied by sticking to it or sticking with it. He was looking at Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to this. I don't care what happens. I know what faces me there, but I am cling to that. I am so joined to that which I have to do. It's with fervor of spirit. I will adhere, adhere to this. The, 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 the purpose and the place are connected by the passion that I have toward it. And he became at one with the place and the purpose. And so we'll move on to Jerusalem. The, uh, the, where are we at? I missed a couple things, didn't I? The passion, the purpose. What was the purpose of him going there? I'm going to give you this real quick. The purpose was he was going to declare. He came to declare. This is why Jesus came. In John, the first chapter, verse 18, when G John is talking about Jesus coming into the world, the world that was made flesh, he says, nobody has seen God at any time, yet the only begotten Son has declared him. He's made him known. To declare, it, it, uh, in John 17, Jesus prayed before he went to Calvary, and he says, Lord, I want to make your name great. And I pray that these people will be as one, just as you and I are one. Jesus came to, to, do, to declare the name of the Lord and to declare God to erase the misconceptions. You see, there are still people today that have misconceptions about God. Why would God ask a man to go kill his son? They don't understand that. They, they think God is being mean and cruel. Why did God allow this to happen? Jesus came to show the misconception. He didn't want Abraham's son. He wanted to show Abraham what he was going to do. Erase the misconceptions. God is a God of love. He wanted to express God's love. No greater love has anyone than a man would lay down his life for the, a friend. Through his action, Jesus was declaring the love of God. And he was establishing a relationship with God that, that now we can come into the Holy of Holies by virtue of the blood of the Lamb and have a relationship with God. He came to declare that. He came to do the will of God. Hebrews says that it is written in the volume of the book, Lord, I have come to do your will, O God. 
Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. John, the fifth chapter, he says, I don't do anything of my own accord. I only do what I see God doing. He came to deliver. Hebrews, the second chapter, verse 15, says, to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Every person that has been subject to bondage, those who don't know Jesus, from all time, from now, especially today, he came to deliver us from bondage, to deliver us from sin, to deliver us from a spirit of fear, to deliver us from every stronghold that the enemy has built up. Jesus came to deliver us from every mind and thought of rejection, every confusion, to deliver every addict from the, the curse that is upon their life, to deliver us from the anxiety, the stress, the pain, the agony. He came to deliver us from the hopelessness that we were living in before that. He came to deliver us from the bitterness that Satan gets a root of uh, and plants in our life. He came to deliver us from every grief and every sorrow, every pain, every jealousy, every rage. He came to deliver us. Colossians 2.13 says that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of, a, of his son, of his love. Redemption through his blood. Delivering us. I, I worked in a factory one time and they had conveyor belts. And it would go from one place. And if, you're on, if it was on the belt, it would just take it from one place to the other. And just like God deliver, or conveyed Lazarus out of the tomb, he brought him out to where he could be set free. I want to tell you something. He has conveyed us out of darkness and into his life. He has delivered us through the blood of his only son that we could be set free. Thank God for deliverance. And he came to destroy. John, 1 John 3, 8 says that he, for this purpose, the Son of Man came into the world, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Everything that Satan has been doing, had been doing, and has been doing, or ever will, Jesus came to destroy that. Amen? Amen. Hebrews 2, 14 says, Inasmuch then... As the children have partaken in flesh and even so much as the children are flesh and blood, he himself came as flesh and blood. He shared in that, that through his death he might destroy him who had the power of death. Jesus came for that purpose. He went to Jerusalem. The reason he was going there was not to sightsee, he was going there to bring deliverance. To going there to declare the Lord, to break every misconception, to destroy the power of the enemy and do the will of God. Amen. And that's what he wants to do today in our lives. Right. Are you with me? Amen. Hallelujah. I want you to stand to your feet, if you would, please, with me this morning. Father, I thank you, Lord, through that name of Jesus that we has been declared in all the earth. And we declare the name of Jesus over every person that is here today. If there are those who are struggling with the various strongholds that the enemy has placed upon their life, Lord, if, if they're, they're living in that place and, and, and of, of, of addiction or rejection, confusion, anxiety or despair, depression, hopelessness, bitterness, grief, sorrow, whatever it is, I thank you, Lord Jesus, right now that they can be set free by virtue of the blood of the Jesus, your only son. 
I speak over them right now, shalom. Shalom. I speak wholeness, completeness, perfection, peace, prosperity, provision over them in Jesus' name. I declare over them nothing missing, nothing broken, nothing lost. Thank you, Jesus. It's all brought together through the power of your Son. And I want you to lift up your hand right now and say, Jesus, I thank you that you had the passion to go to that place with that purpose that I might be set free. Everything I struggle with now, I release to you. Break every bit of it. Remove every bit of it out of my life and set me free. May your peace, may your shalom that passes my comprehension invade my life now. May it invade my family. May it invade my home, my workplace, my city, my country, my world. May the name of Jesus bring healing and wholeness. In Jesus' mighty name. Hallelujah. Put your hands together and say, I thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood that sets the captives free, releases them today. Every stronghold has to flee in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory. To God, I thank you, Lord, that we are going to be a church that is known of, was spoken of, or mentioned as the army of God, and that we're a part of it in Jesus' name. I'm reminded, just let me give you this, I'm reminded of this song they used to sing 40 years ago on one of the television programs, and I had my choir sing it when we were in Pittsfield, but uh, it's talking about the, the blood bought, the church, the redeemed, says we are in the army of the Lord, we've been bought by the blood washed in his blood, I, I can't remember it all now, but it says every stronghold of bondage must flee beneath our, must fall beneath our free feet, every prisoner of captive uh, be set free. Well, I forgot it all. <laughs> We're the blood bought, the church, the redeemed. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Hallelujah. Give him praise this morning. Glory to your name. Hallelujah. Father, I thank you, Lord, as the church of the living God, that we're able to do what we need to do this morning in making preparations for what you've blessed us with. Give us strength beyond physical ability to be able to do what needs to be done, to move a, uh, uh, a piano, God, to, to do these things. And we thank you, Lord. I pray, God, there are things that are written on these floors here that are proclamations, prophecies, praise reports and Lord I pray that as the carpet layers remove this carpet that they read these things and may your spirit <laughs> that has been declared from the foundation of this of this house may it speak to their heart and to their life may the Holy Spirit move upon them may they have hope in your name we ask it in the name of Jesus, and everyone say, Amen. 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 Hallelujah.